1: Welcome to Voice of a Nation. And today I asked our expert guest a major question, is this COVID vaccination program unraveling? Are we just seeing the tip of the iceberg on all of the complications and damage with these experimental COVID shots? What exactly is going on that the American public is not being told. And what is the real difference medically between natural immunity and immunity that can be developed if you get vaccinated? Again, the American public is not being told the truth on those differences. What are some of the differences that are so critically important about these new experimental mRNA gene therapy COVID shots compared to more traditional vaccines that we've all known and most of us have had at various times in our lives? What are the types that are available? And what is the connection in the technology creating these vaccine products with the use of human cell lines from babies that have been aborted? I think all of these are critical questions from medical ethics, safety, and from moral questions. Since the Catholic church has made this a statement from the Pope that you must get the vaccine as a moral responsibility. Well, let's just take a look at what some of those moral issues might be that maybe the public is not being told. And with us today is a very highly experienced academic physician, and I'm going to give you his credentials in just a moment, who is going to help address all of these issues. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation host for Malcolm. And I am here today with my guest, Dr. Alan Moy. And Dr. Moy is a physician who earned his MD degree at Creighton University, then did a residency in internal medicine at St. Louis University. Following that, a fellowship in pulmonary medicine at the University of Iowa, and then was on the faculty at the University of Iowa for 13 years. He is a physician scientist with an academic medical career, as well as he has had NIH grants. And over the last several years of his career, he has been actively involved in three major areas of medicine that are directly related to the COVID illness and the COVID experimental injections, as well as the development of safer vaccine products and technology. He has a nonprofit Medical Research Institute, the John Paul II Medical Research Institute. He co-founded and is the CEO of Cellular Engineering Technologies, which is a biotech company that does vaccine research on safer options that are not derived from human cell lines. And he also has a part-time pulmonary medicine practice with a special focus in acute lung injury and has done research in the vascular effects on the lungs. I don't know of anyone better to speak on all of these issues, medical safety and moral issues than Dr. Alan Moy. Dr. Moy, thank you so much for being with us today on Voice of a Nation.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I really would like for you to talk with our listeners. We're going to get to the points that you and I have discussed about all of the information that is being withheld from the public. But let's start with a little basic science lesson here about the difference between natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity. Let's help our listeners in simple language understand the difference. Is one better than the other? And we'd like you to talk to us about that.
2: Sure. Uh, so let's, let me talk about um, the recovery uh, from COVID um, versus the vaccines that are being used currently for COVID. So this is, a, as you are aware, this is a respiratory virus. It enters into the respiratory tract. It causes, to a varying degree, mild disease to as as bad as very severe uh, respiratory failure in some circumstances. And so the natural immunity um, is broken down into three major types of categories. Because it enters into the respiratory tract, uh, the body establishes what's called respiratory mucosal immunity. So that's a combination of antibody and cell-mediated immunity that helps to protect against the entry and transmission of the virus. The next stage is um, a systemic antibody immunity. That's the antibody immunity that is often spoken about with these vaccines. Uh, That that immunity tends to be short-lived and in some patients um, may not be uh, triggered at all, depending upon their underlying uh, comorbid status, uh, so that immunity may vary from um, a few weeks to um, three to four months, and it tends to be transient. Um, the the last, more important immunity is what's called T cell or cell mediated immunity, which people probably have heard on TV that immunity is provides more long-lasting immunity in response to a reinfection. So for example, if you were of my generation uh, where we came down with chickenpox and we broke out with these blisters and then had, and recovered from that and then had children later in life and who also came down with chickenpox prior to the vaccine that was later introduced, Um, as we took care of our children, we didn't get chicken pox again. And that's because of that T cell immunity. It is a memory immunity that provides um, a a recall from being reinfected. Now, in contrast, the vaccine immunity, um, we are using what are called subunit vaccines. We're not, instead of giving the whole, being exposed to the entire virus, Uh, This type of immunity is uh, built on being exposed to a specific viral protein, which which we call a viral antigen, and it's injected into our muscles. And it is triggering a a, a humoral immunity, an antibody immunity that I was mentioning earlier. And if it is, um, hopefully it will trigger a T cell immunity. Now, there are some major differences between natural immunity and the vaccine immunity from the COVID vaccines. One of which is the current vaccines because it's bypassing delivery through the respiratory tract does not provide any respiratory mucosal immunity. So that is the advantage right off the bat with Uh, recovering from COVID-19 is that patients are uh, achieving this respiratory mucosal immunity that helps to prevent the transmission of the virus to and from a patient. Um, The second advantage of natural immunity is that people are being recovering and developing immunity to, to multiple different viral proteins or antigens. In the case of of the the vaccine immunity, you're exposed to the spike protein delivered through different mechanisms, which we can get into later. In that scenario, uh, there is um, a restricted immunity to the spike protein, uh, whereas in a natural immunity, you're exposed to multiple antigens. So there is a redundancy in your body's immune system to respond to different antigens, so which you don't get with the vaccine, and there are certain antigens in the COVID in the COVID virus that actually have more stronger T cell immunity than the actual spike protein of these of these, of these vaccines. So, bottom line is that the uh, the vaccine. Uh, doesn't even come close to the natural immunity that one can achieve when they recovered, and this is why patients who were exposed to the SARS outbreak back in 2002, and which is about 17, 18 years ago, um, are are still protected from this COVID-19 to a great degree because they have achieved. T cell immunity from the SARS-1 because of this redundancy uh, and the strong T cell immunity that uh, occurred when they were exposed 20 years ago. So it's a big difference. And this difference is not being uh, explained to the public. And essentially the the medical authorities, uh, the media uh, are essentially discounting the value of natural immunity and treated it as second-class response to the vaccine immunity, and that's just not the case.
1: Well, and that's, that's very damaging information to withhold from the public, because people, and in particular, when there is also, we've got two things that have happened. The COVID exposed and COVID recovered patients were excluded from the clinical trials, and yet they are being absolutely pushed to get this experimental COVID shot now, in spite of the fact that the public health officials who are directing that know full well the basic immunity principles you just outlined, and they know about the long-lasting immunity at the T cell level from SARS-CoV-1, which shares about 78 to 79% of the viral genome with SARS-CoV-2. They know that. So they—they—it's—it's it's, to me, it's bigger than the fact that they are discounting natural immunity. It's, they are deceptive for the public in not discussing that this is actually better to have had COVID and recovered, as Dr. McCullough often says, people who have had COVID and recovered deserve a gold medal, and they should have a free pass to do anything because they are immune.
2: Yeah, so I would say that if I was in a if I was in a in a s- small room with a hundred uh, COVID recovered patients versus a hundred vaccine patients, um, I would take the former over the latter any day of the week
1: so would I. And I also think that there are other issues that are coming to light, which Dr. McCullough addressed in a webinar we did today on the fact that there is a very plausible mechanism for the shedding of the uh, spike proteins in people who've been vaccinated. And so that's a whole separate issue. But I I think there are uh, this cover up related to the benefits of natural immunity. And I loved your chickenpox example because I had chickenpox as a child. And I know uh, I, you know, we, we didn't get a vaccine for it when the vaccines became available if we had it as a child. And they've never done that. So this is a huge principle. And I hope our listeners really took note of these important differences between natural immunity, which is far better. And for those of us who believe in God's grand design of the human body and the fact that that God had a better plan for our immune system than what we as mankind have come up with, then it makes sense to to push the benefits of our natural immunity. What are some of the other aspects of these experimental COVID injections that you feel clearly are are known scientific facts that are being withheld from the public.
2: Sure. Um, Well, first, people are obviously not aware of the history of uh, vaccine development for novel coronaviruses. Uh, That's dating back all the way from 2002 from the SARS-1 outbreak and the MERS outbreak in 2012. And what people don't realize is that um, a lot of the, the methods that are being used in Operation Warp Speed are very similar to the methods that were attempted back in uh, or after uh, SARS-CoV-1. And it resulted in problems with efficacy and safety um, at the preclinical level and at a, at a clinical phase, uh, clinical trial phase one, uh, it failed to, to de- lead to a, an effective vaccine. So for 20 years, uh, scientists around the world have been trying to solve the problem, coming up with a vaccine for novel coronaviruses using a lot of the same strategies and failed. And suddenly um, last year, we have this Operation Warp Speed that suddenly has solved what purportedly has solved what in 20 years could not be solved. And so one of the concerns I have is that being rushed, a vaccine being rushed this way uh, and not considering the history of the research leading up to this point, um, the general public is not aware of that. Um, And so one of the problems of, uh, one of the major problems in terms of efficacy of these Operation Warp B vaccines is uh, due to the fact uh, they are called subunit vaccines, as I mentioned earlier. They are, they are uh, exposing someone to a one single viral antigen, in this case, the original spike protein from the Wuhan outbreak. The problem is that is the Achilles heel of these vaccines. That is, you're hoping that that Wuhan's strain will remain um, stable as it emerges throughout the world, but as we know um, th- there are many variants that have evolved around the world from the United Kingdom strain, from the South African, the Brazilian, and more recently from India with the Delta variant. And so these variants primarily are changing at the spike protein level. And so as, the, um, as these uh, RNA viruses, which are very unstable and naturally are un- undergoing mutations all the time, some of them are trivial and irrelevant. Some of them are more important and more, clinic- more biologically relevant. The efficacy of these vaccines based on their Wuhan strain becomes less effective. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that these the new variants are more deadlier. It just means that the vaccine was built on a design that originated you know, over a year ago from China. So that's, that's the problem with these vaccines is that because it's based on a single antigen and the RNA virus is uh, changing all the time, there is a risk that the the vaccine becomes less effective dependent upon the variant.
1: Well, I think we're already seeing that. One of the things that Dr. McCullough was talking about this morning on a webinar was exactly the point that in India and the United States, for example, where the Delta variant is becoming more prevalent, it is less infectious and less deadly, and, and so the Delta variant, but yet the Delta variant is being ginned up as everyone should be afraid of it and get the vaccine, but the, the COVID experimental shots don't work against the Delta variant for the reasons you just explained.
2: And that's, that's correct, whereas um, the, uh, when you're re- recovering from the natural immunity, there are three other uh, viral antigens and those, if you look at the, uh, the genetic sequence of those compared to the Wuhan, there's a lot more conservation uh, because it is under less uh, biological pressure interacting with your host tissue than the spike protein. And that's, that's the reason why.
1: And I, But I hear the media and the talking points from the public health officials, such as um, Anthony Fauci, That they they are hiding the fact that the Delta variant is not prevented by the current mRNA experimental shots. They are making it sound like you need to get the shot to prevent, to protect yourself from the Delta variant. And it's exactly the opposite.
2: Correct. And so in, in Israel, I believe that, um, that the, there is a lot more of the current variants in Israel are due to the Delta variant. And so the vaccines are less effective among the Israelis. And so now just because uh, you're having an having a, emergence of these Delta variants doesn't mean that uh, it it extrapolates to the argument. Well, just get vaccinated. Well, that's that. That's the problem with these vaccines is that they are not a. They're so unstable in terms of providing sustainable immunity. And what is also a problem with these um, subunit vaccines uh, that I di- I didn't uh, mention is <clears throat> what we knew from uh, from the COVID one research and even the clinical trials from COVID-2 is that the antibodies are uh, are not sustainable depending upon your age. So if you are between, this is based on the Moderna data, Um, if you are between the ages of uh, 55 and 70, your antibody levels after three months will drop by 50%. And if you're over the age of 70, your antibody levels would drop by roughly 70% by within three months, after three months. So we know historically that the elderly tend to have problems with mounting T cell immunity, um, even to vaccines and a variety of patients, if you are obese, if you're smokers, you're diabetics, uh, patients fall into this category have historically had problems mounting T cell immunity uh, to disease or into vaccines. So that means that if you are, even if you receive the vaccine and you fall into one of those categories, well, if you don't achieve T cell immunity, your entire immune protection is gonna be short lived. And so within four months, you may not be any more vaccinated or protected, I should say, than the person who was not vaccinated. So that's the problem with these subunit vaccines is they tend to have a history of having very short limited uh, immunity. And that's why uh, the, uh, the CDC, Tony Fauci and um, the pharmaceutical industry is pushing for these boosters.
1: Well, and that is, I think, just so tragic for the public because we are already seeing so many thousands and thousands of people who are having everything from mild reactions to very severe reactions to people who are dying. As of, as of now, there are over 6,000 deaths in the VAERS database in the United States alone. And the estimates are that that only accounts for anywhere from one to 10% of the actual damage that's occurring. And that's based on data that you know as well as I do that goes back to Harvard studies from 2010, looking at the inadequacy of the theirs data and the fact that there's just so little of the adverse events actually getting into the database. Plus, now we know from people who work at the CDC that they are four months at least backlogged in recording the adverse event reports coming in to theirs, So it's staggering that we're seeing this much damage and they're already talking about giving, pushing people to get boosters.
2: And we don't have any clinical data, um, cl- any uh, randomized clinical trials to uh, with a control group to know what does that What is the uh, efficacy and side effects when you are boosting people with a gene therapy?
1: Well, that's a very good point. And I think we're going to pick up these points in more depth after the break. We're gonna take a short break right now, and we will be right back to talk further with Dr. Alan Moore on exactly what's going on with this mass vaccination program and what are we really seeing beneath the surface that suggests we've got big problems that the public is not being told? We will be right back.
0: Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com.
3: Because of COVID-19, The average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a -a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
4: liberty, and justice for all.
1: This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host in for Malcolm, back for the second half of the first hour on Voice of a Nation with our guest, Dr. Alan Moy, talking about the vaccination program what's unraveling what is the public not being told and what do you need to know about perhaps other options to prevent covid infection welcome back dr moy and thank you for staying with us and we'll talk more about some of the work that you've been doing on the vaccine front and what other points have you been concerned about that you think the public needs to have a clearer picture about risk and options? So, I think one of the things uh,
2: that is important for the general public is this is the first time in history, and where in which uh, mass, uh, in which gene therapy is being used in mass vaccination, and that's unprecedented historically uh gene therapy has been restricted to rare genetic disease or for the treatment of refractory cancers uh and in in this case the, um, the vaccines that have been approved under the emergency use authorizations are are um all gene therapies uh thus far and what people don't understand is what is a gene therapy what does it mean what's the uh, why is a the gene therapy used and what's the, what is the pur- purported theoretical advantage and the risks of gene therapy? And so the way I try to explain this to the audience is that um, the in the case of a gene therapy, well, let me just back up a little bit. So historically um, uh, the pharmaceutical industry would, when they prepare a vaccine, uh, they would use um, a, 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 a specific method which in which the vaccine has to be standardized so when you're getting a vaccine you have a standardized dose and a standardized form, formulation so everyone gets this, everyone gets the same drug in the case of a gene therapy that is not true so um, in the gene therapy, the, uh, the the vaccine or whatever you want to call it, the experimental uh, med- medication in this case, um, the patient's uh, own tissues have to express the spike protein, and that is not a, a that does not provide a standardized dose or formulation because now you're, you're providing a very personalized individual dose and individual formulation. And why is that? So for people who are uh, younger, um, when they are giving a gene, the younger you are, the higher chance that you are going to uh, express that gene and translate that into a protein. And on the opposite uh, spectrum, uh, the older you are and the elderly is the lower chance that you will be able to express that gene and translate that into a protein. So you have two different population based on age that are gonna have a different uh, profile of, of a dose. And the second issue is formulation. These proteins are more, complicated in a string of amino acids. They represent a combination of amino acids and sugar molecules. And when these proteins are uh, from these vaccines are produced, uh, you're really producing differences in sugar molecules that vary as a function of age and disease. So in certain diseases like cancer or autoimmune disease, the sugar metabolism that is very, very different and can promote disease more readily than if in a normal tissue. So, what that means is the younger you are, the greater the risks of expressing the spike protein. And so, that's what really concerns me when you, we are giving um, a gene therapy to children and young adults where they have very low risk of morbidity and mortality, and they have little benefit from, uh, benefit from this vaccine, and they have the highest risk of developing uh, an adverse event because they may be overexpressing the gene. Uh, that's what concerned me greatly uh, is that we are subjecting younger people to these vaccines when they are at adverse risk because just the biology of gene therapy. And that is why now we're about seeing more young males developing uh, uh, heart inflammation, myocarditis, uh, than has been
1: purported uh, naturally. You know, this is just. I think a staggering complication that parents are not being informed. And in fact, we I just did a show recently with a child and adolescent psychiatrist in Los Angeles, Dr. Mark McDonald, who pointed out that the normal maternal protective instinct to protect children that all mothers have it's, a, it's I just think it's a God-given instinct for mothers to want to protect their children. And he pointed out the fact that, that that is being deceptively utilized in very destructive ways because mothers are being manipulated through fear that if they don't get their children these experimental COVID shots, their children are gonna die. And that is exactly the opposite of what we know to be medically correct. And you just confirmed it again. And the other concern I have, I've spent a career working on the ways in which the reproductive hormones affect all organ systems in our body, not just reproduction and not just sexual function, and looking at the ways in which the Hormones from the testes in men and the ovaries in women affect the brain and affect the cardiovascular system and the gut and all sorts of our other health systems in our body. And when the biodistribution studies of the COVID gene therapy injections was finally released in English recently it had been languishing in Japanese because it was the Japanese government that asked Pfizer to provide it. It turns out that these experimental gene therapy agents within 48 hours of the shot are concentrating in the ovaries of young women and the testicles in men. And they are also, the the testicles are loaded with the ACE2 receptors that the spike protein binds to. So we're looking at damage to the ovaries in girls and young women. We are looking at damage to the testicular function and testosterone production in boys and young men, which not only is an infertility problem later, but it's it's a metabolic problem that affects every organ system in the body.
2: Yeah, so we, we have um, forcing these uh, adolescents to a vaccine, which we don't have any, any long term data. We have no historic data on gene therapy in any population, a healthy population for sure, uh, and knowing what are going to be the long term consequences to their fertility, uh, to their, to their uh, health. And for a group that has essentially zero risk of death and the, the, the problems are that we're, we're forcing mandates and school mandates um, to, for these college students to go have these vaccines when they have, uh, many of them already recovered from COVID and uh, majority of them, almost 100% of them, are gonna recover um, and are gonna have the rest of their lives to have to deal with this unknown risk.
1: They're not even suggesting, I, mean, I think it's totally ir- irresponsible and dangerous that none of our public health officials are suggesting to people that they get tested for their immunity status before they go ahead and get these experimental shots. We have simple blood tests in every clinical laboratory in the entire country where people can have the antibody testing. There is the T-detect test for T-cell immunity. And granted, that one is a cash pay option. People can go to t-detect.com and order it themselves. And that one is, is still under an emergency use authorization and requires Um, It doesn't have insurance coverage, but the point is these other tests are available and no one is suggesting that before we push these experimental shots into lower and lower age ranges that we check their immunity. A lot of the kids and college kids have been exposed, as you pointed out. I just think this is unconscionable that people are not told if you think you might have had COVID or you might have been exposed. Get tested for your immunity before you go ahead and get the jab.
2: Yes, it's uh, definitely uh, medically unethical, um, and it's it violates uh, standard uh, clinical research ethics. Yes, yes.
1: Let's you've, you've segued into ethics. Let's talk a little bit about the human cells that are the basis of these technologies that in these mRNA vaccines in particular, I'd really like for you to explain where the human cells came from and what are some other technologies that you personally have been involved in doing the research to look at ways that we don't have to use human cell lines to develop vaccines?
2: So, um, So the cell lines that are currently being used in Operation Warp Speed vaccines are using a cell line called the HEK-293 cell line, the Human Embryonic Kidney Cell 293, developed in the 1970s in in the Netherlands. Uh, There is a, uh, it's about, so it's 50 years old. Um, There is another cell line that is uh, developed, called the PERC6 uh, that was developed um, from a, a, a retinal cell. Both of these uh, cell lines were ha- have uh, a checkered past. They have been derived and uh, developed from the abortion, uh, an abortion from unborn children back 40 to 50 years ago. So the HEK-293 and the PERC c 6 are used in varying stages of these COVID-19 vaccines. Some um, like the Johnson Johnson adenovirus vaccine, uh, it's used in the manufacturing of the vaccine, in the design and in the testing of the vaccine. In the case of the um, um, actually the, in the Johnson & Johnson, it's the PERC-6 that's used um, in the manufacturing, but in the testing and design, the HEK-293 was used. In the case of the mRNA vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna, the HEK-293 um, is not used in manufacturing because you don't need a cell line to manufacture these mRNA vaccines but it was certainly used in the testing of the vaccine. And there is some debate that uh, it was used in the design of the vaccine to to verify the mRNA sequence. That being said, um, uh, these vaccines, because they have some uh, tentacles in the use of these aborted fetal cell lines, um, it carries a, a, a moral dilemma for people of religious backgrounds uh, and specifically the Catholic church. And so in the Catholic church, um, there has been uh, statements in the past to uh, try to come up with a position on vaccines that were manufactured with aborted fetal cells. And so in 2005, they, uh, the Va- Vatican came up with a position statement uh, in response to the rubella vaccine, that <clears throat> that there's a four point position statement. If the disease is dire, um, then one can consider a vaccine that was derived from abortion. Uh, the second uh, criteria is there has to be no other alternative. That is, um, there no there has there has to be there cannot be any ethical alternative. Um, so obviously, in the first two positions, the COVID uh, nineteen um, is grave for some people at high risk, but it's not grave for a lot of people who are not high risk. So in in uh, and in the case of alternative medications, um, there is alternatives. There are alternatives, as you mentioned, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin uh, that have already been uh, mentioned by Dr. McCullough. Um, And so, and the third is that you, uh, there needs to be uh, an effort, if there is no alternative, to push the pharmaceutical industry to uh, develop vaccines that are medicines that are not derived from aborted fetal cell lines. The problem is that since 2005, uh, nothing has been done. Uh, the the, the, the HEK293 cell has actually become uh, increasingly ubiquitous uh, in so many other uh, types of advanced uh, uh, medicines um, from uh, produ- the production of uh, medicines in gene therapy. Every gene therapy uses the HEK293. Um there are certain uh drugs, uh protein drugs that are produced uh using the HEK 293. Um all of the CAR T therapies that are used for the treatment of uh lymphocytic leukemia are using the HEK-293. So if you are a patient who has cancer, if you're a patient with a genetic disease who needs a gene therapy, if you're a patient uh, such as uh, who have hemophilia or cystic fibrosis and you're, and you're receiving clotting factors or pulmazine, which is used for the treatment of uh, cystic fibrosis, you are exposed to uh, these uh, medications that required the 293 cell line. And so the problem is that um, that our Catholic leadership have not really followed the position from 2005. They have, instead of uh, taking on a more moral consistent message that goes back to the 2005 Vatican statement, they have been talking about using rhetoric like it's a moral, uh, it's a moral imperative. It's uh, we need to vaccinate people because of the common good. So. You have a lot of re- religious individuals who are pro-life who are feel that they are uh, caught in the corner, that they're being forced to take a vaccine that is against their moral authority, regardless of what their risk factor is for this disease.
1: Well, I, I just think, again, we're looking at such a massive... Um, avoidance of telling the public the truth and that leads into another big concern I have uh, the discussion about using the human cell lines but in the the whole connection with abortion but also from a different standpoint I have a serious medical and legal and moral concern about pushing these experimental COVID shots for pregnant women when this is the first time in the history of the vaccination program that we have a technology in these mRNA products that pushes those, they are covered with a, uh, they have a lipid nanoparticle coating, That drives the vaccine across the blood brain barrier and affecting the nervous system, but also across the placental barrier. And a developing baby doesn't have its immune system in the early stages of pregnancy. And we had a maternal fetal medicine expert on the the Voice of a Nation recently talking about the fact that. COVID-19 is not a serious illness for pregnant women. Influenza can be, but influenza vaccines don't cross the placental barrier and these new experimental COVID mRNA gene therapy ones do cross the placental barrier. We have absolutely no research, no information on what is this doing to a developing baby and its, its genes, but also its brain development, because it's affecting the brain as well. I just find this staggering, and I can't, for the life of me, comprehend how a pregnant woman would want to risk it, other than the fact that they've been manipulated through fear. What are your concerns about the use of these experimental gene therapy agents in pregnancy?
2: Well, I share your concern. Um, I think that um, we don't have we don't we we don't have uh, animal data, uh, pregnancy data on these vaccines. We know that uh, that these vaccines are encapsulated with uh, lipid, and we know that that lipid. Um, uh, when it's been caged uh, with other types of drugs, um, it has crossed the uh, placenta maternal barrier. And so we we, we lack terig- uh, the terig- uh data on these vaccines. Um, and moreover, uh, we know that uh, hydroxychloroquine um, has been around for a long time and it is safe. And we have, uh, we have safety data in pregnant women. And so this is um, information that is not being disclosed and offered as alternative to women who are pregnant.
1: Well, the, you're, you are supporting what our maternal fetal medicine expert, Dr. Blumerich said. He said, I've been using hydroxychloroquine for 25 years in, in pregnant women. For many conditions, rheumatoid, lupus, malaria prevention. And now he said, it's been, we have a safety track record to show that it would be safe to treat a pregnant woman who gets sick with COVID. And then he talked about the fact that in pregnancy, for for interesting reasons, COVID just isn't as severe an illness as influenza can be. And so... I think that leads into the question for both of us to talk about as physicians in the remaining um, five minutes or so of the show. What are the options that people can use to protect themselves from being infected with COVID that don't involve taking the risk of an experimental mRNA gene therapy shot?
2: So I think there are some, uh, well, one thing right now is that the, uh, the, the uh, incidence of COVID right now in this country is so low, the death rates are low. And so the probability that uh, someone is going to be exposed to, and, uh, to COVID and get ill is very low at this point. So I think the the fear um, really should diminish right now. Um, I think that they, um, they should um, use some basic common sense. They should uh, get exercise. They should de- try to improve their immune system. They should take their vitamins, their vitamin C, their vitamin D, um, and because a lot of these patients who do get COVID have shown that they have uh, vitamin D deficiency. So I think that um, if they are um, sick, I think we need to have doctors um, be more uh, aware and more involved in early management of patients who are come down with COVID and they start developing uh, respiratory symptoms, uh, early intervention with these uh, multi-drug cocktails like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin um, or doxycycline, uh, aspirin and vitamin D and zinc are important for them uh, to get access as soon as possible. The problem is, is that um, we got to have a more engaged um, uh, medical community that needs to be aware of how to manage these patients. And unfortunately, that is being blocked by, um, uh, by the mainstream media and big tech.
1: You are so right about that. And I've been working closely with many of the frontline doctors since last February and March on looking at all of these early treatment combination therapies with existing FDA approved medicines we've used for other medical conditions for decades, and it's perfectly legal and common practice for doctors to use existing medicines for new uses off-label. And those of us that have been treating our patients within the first five days of COVID symptoms since last February, March, when we began putting together what this illness was, it's viral it's inflammatory and it's blood clotting problems. So you treat viral illnesses early and we've been using the ivermectin, the um, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, doxycycline, inhaled corticosteroids, oral corticosteroids, anticoagulants, platelet medicines. And literally, Dr. Moy, in all the months of treating the COVID patients in my own practice, by treating that quickly In the first five days, I didn't have any patients go in the hospital and I didn't have anyone die. And that's what a lot of the frontline outpatient home-based COVID treatment doctors were finding. Problem is most primary care doctors are sending them to the emergency room when they can't breathe. And at that point, you not only risk serious illness and death, but you also are risking the COVID long hauler syndrome, which is a whole nother area that we need to talk about. And I'll have you back because it's been an absolute uh, uh, delight to have someone with your knowledge and expertise to talk about all these issues for our listeners. We will definitely have you back. We'll talk more about the lung injury next time. But these therapies are available through telemedicine services. Some of the frontline doctors Dr. Stella Emanuel, Dr. Simone Gold, Dr. Ben Marble, and Dr. Brian Tyson actually started telemedicine services that are providing early treatment consults at low cost, and they are their programs are treating 15 to 20,000 patients a day. So any of the people listening who are having trouble getting access to early treatment, go to the website www.truth4. Health.org and click on the patient guide. And we have a patient guide that's free that you can print that gives you the information on all of these treatment approaches and the telemedicine resources. Keep it in your medical records and use it so that if you get sick, you know what the options are. Dr. Moy, thank you so much for being with us today. How can people contact you through your medical uh, services or your websites for the research?
2: So uh, thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity to have a platform, uh, Lee. Uh, in closing, what I would say is that the, uh, the John Paul II Medical Research Institute uh, has been working on a attenuated live vaccine and an attenuated vaccine uh, that is, the, does, is free of using aborted fetal cells. And so this is gonna require new technologies. And so um, we have been receiving a lot of interest around the world because people are concerned about the, how these vaccines are tainted with the 293 cell line. So um, for those people who uh, wanna learn more about what we do, and wanna donate to this vaccine program, They can go to our website at jp2mri.org. That's jp2, the number two, mri.org. And they can learn more about our
1: research in this area. Thank you so much. And I hope our listeners will do that and support your research. It's critically important. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Moy. Thank you to our listeners who have stayed with us for this first hour of our two-hour program on the experimental COVID vaccination program and what's really happening. We're going to be talking about a community, a psychiatrist's vision, and what he's seeing on the ground in Texas for the second hour, so stay tuned for the second hour. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm, signing off for today for the first hour Come back for the second hour. It's time to get loud, get involved, and speak up to help make the world around you a better place.
0: The heart and soul of a nation beckons the call.
1: Welcome to Voice of a Nation. This is the second hour of a powerful show on more information and background on the experimental COVID vaccines, safety issues, some of the issues that we're going to be talking about in the second hour are not only the safety issues, but also what about some of the reasons that the public is increasingly distrustful of the CDC. There's been some new breaking news on past adverse events, adverse side effects of vaccines that have actually been covered up. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the lack of reporting of the deaths and the adverse events with the experimental COVID genetic vaccines and we're going to talk about some of the risk in the black community with one of the, I'm really honored to have with us today Dr. Delwyn Williams who is a practicing psychiatrist in the area of Arlington, Texas. This is Dr. Lee for America your Team Nation guest host in for Malcolm. And we are pleased to have you with us, Dr. Williams. I want to tell our listeners a little bit about your background because I think it's so interesting. Dr. Williams has been specializing. He's a physician who is specializing in community psychiatry for the last 30 years. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Texas Christian University, affiliated now with University of North Texas in Fort Worth, Texas, and he is involved in seeing patients as well as training both medical students and psychiatric residents. He currently also works in an emergency room as a psychiatrist and has a great deal of insight into the impact of the pandemic response and the lockdowns on many aspects of the communities that he serves, both from the social standpoint and the physical standpoint, as well as some of the economic impact seeing people in the ER dealing with psychiatric issues. Dr. Williams and his wife are Christians and attend Eagle Mountain International Church His wife is also a gospel recording artist, and I personally look forward to hearing some of her recordings. Welcome today, Dr. Williams. Thank you so much for joining us on Voice of a Nation.
3: It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm very excited to be able to share some information Uh, uh, all of my opinions, uh, just want to let you know up front or, or my own, I am not representing any
1: institutions with, with which I am uh, associated. I understand. And we all seem to be, if we work with an institution, it seems like everyone these days has to be cautious about saying that. Um, but I appreciate that. And I know our listeners appreciate your honesty. Well, you were sharing with me some very interesting information from this new article by Dr. Uh, sorry, um, the reporter, investigative reporter Cheryl Atkison, whose article deals with a, a CDC senior scientist who has admitted to covering up damaging information about the autism vaccine link, specifically in African-American males who had received the MMR vaccine before age 36 months or three years. And that was stunning, what Dr. William Thompson admitted to, and she discusses in that article. Tell us more about how you see that ties in with all that we're facing today, with a lot of questions about the experimental COVID vaccines?
3: Well, I, I tell you, it was uh, a very eye-opening. I stumbled across this article, and in fact, the, the title of the article was <laughs> did not really suggest what it was about. I, I didn't expect to read what I did. Um, however, you can see how uh, bureaucracies uh, are able to uh, sweep things under the rug, uh, that are inconvenient truths, uh, from their perspective. Um, this, uh, Dr. William Thompson at the CDC, uh, you know, I, he, uh, confessed, uh, to the cover-up and, uh, has implicated, uh, m- many other, the scientists there at the CDC. I I'm really shocked. Uh, I guess I shouldn't be, but I am shocked that there hasn't been any follow-up, uh, with regard to what happened in that incident, uh, I understand there was one um, lawmaker from Florida uh, who was trying to to get some investigations done. Uh, but you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies uh, give a lot of money to these uh, politicians, and uh, it's hard to to uh, get those guys to, uh, to come against uh, anything that the, the, the pharmaceutical companies are trying to get done in terms of uh, their sales and. Uh, looking at the, this uh, type of information could hurt them, uh, those pharmaceutical companies, quite a bit. I, I'm very disappointed, um, uh, it, it, but it does show that it's healthy to have a lack of distrust. I mean, you know, a lot of times, uh, to have some distrust, I'm sorry, uh, with regard to uh, these uh, people who we expect to be there for our well being and our good. Um, again, a lot of times in bureaucratic systems, There are other competing uh, desires and and, and motivations uh, that are beyond the well-being of the people that are supposed to be treated.
1: Well, that's exactly right. And what has absolutely been uh, just beyond comprehension by normal people, people with common sense, you don't have to be a medical professional to just have some common sense, it doesn't make sense that the CDC, which has always in the past discussed infectious disease risk and vaccine issues, for them to be totally silent on the enormous numbers of deaths with the experimental COVID vaccines and to be at least four months, perhaps more, behind in recording adverse events into the vaccine adverse event reporting system on the CDC website. I I just find that is a serious danger to public health.
3: Absolutely. Uh, The the VAERS reporting system has been uh, a very poor reporting system uh, for years and, and, and we've all known that. Uh, Harvard did a study and, and looked at that, web, that that reporting system, the website, and uh, they uh, estimated that between 1 to 10% of uh, all side effects are being reported. Um, so it's a very low number uh, and, and, and the fact that we now have over 6,000 Deaths reported on that website uh, uh, with regard to these inoculations is very frightening um, because that we know that that's a small percentage of the the probable total number, according to Harvard University.
1: Well, um, it could be it could be more than ninety times that number mm-hmm. if you look at at that Harvard twenty ten study that showed about one percent, and even if if they are report, even if it's 10% of the deaths that are actually happening that are reported, we're still looking at over 60,000 deaths even uh, in a best case
3: uh, area. Absolutely, and uh, you look back uh, to 1976 when the, the swine flu uh, uh, inoculations uh, vaccines came out and uh, I believe there were around 25 people died from that vaccine and it was that program was totally stopped i mean 25 that's a that's a minuscule number compared to 6 thousand in, you know what less than half a year uh, so it, it's amazing to me that uh, we're not looking at that and, and that's not being reported anywhere of course
1: well what are you seeing in the emergency room because you and i both know that <clears throat> these experimental genetic COVID vaccines are engineered to deliver the vaccine across the blood brain barrier, leading to inflammation within the brain and central and peripheral nervous system. So that's right up your alley as a psychiatrist. What are you seeing coming into the emergency room with people who've been vaccinated?
3: Well, uh, to be honest, you know, of course, we're not treating uh, folks for, for COVID. Uh, in fact, we we're sending those folks to a different uh, uh, unit. Uh, and, uh, you know, so we, we don't, the, the vaccination aspect of it, we haven't started logging or keeping a log of who's uh, been vaccinated and who has not. I, I think that that's something I'm, I'm starting to do on my own, uh, just to, to get a feel for what's going on. And I'm asking patients if they've been vaccinated. Um, but we're seeing a tremendous amount of, uh, of depression and anxiety, of course. And a lot of that's because of the, the fear that's been instilled by the CDC from the beginning of this uh, terrible uh, episode. Um, there was a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of, of fear that uh, it has kept people in their homes. Uh, a lot of panic disorder, we're seeing quite a bit of that. Uh, with young people, especially, suicide uh, attempts are, are way up. Uh, suicide rates have gone up. In, 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 uh, in addition, uh, substance abuse is through the roof, uh, and uh, a lot of uh, opiate uh, use as well uh, uh, here in uh, in Texas. Uh, there's a lot of methamphetamine use, but the opiate use has really increased. Uh, I've noted uh, uh, over this uh, past year. So uh, people, and, and then there's a lot of child abuse that's gone up because people have been locked in the house uh, with their kids a lot and, uh, and, and it's going unreported in terms of the child abuse. There's a lot of uh, manifestations of problems that have come out of uh, uh, this entire episode. Well,
1: that, that has been borne out across the country. You're absolutely right. And I, I think there again, CDC normally, was tracking those kinds of public health issues. And we are not hearing anything about these skyrocketing problems with depression and substance abuse and suicide and family violence, all of the things that you just mentioned. We're not hearing about it. The media is complicit in silence and certainly the CDC is not addressing it, and no. I. Mm-hmm. What about the other physicians in your area? Do you see any physicians, psychiatrists, speaking out on any of this?
3: No, no, I, I don't, uh, and I, and not just psychiatrists but physicians. Uh, you know, it, it's it's always been very strange to me that we're looking at treating one illness. Um, W- without looking at every other illness, uh, the spectrum of other illnesses that are out there, and so we're treating only COVID, it seems, in this country that has become the priority, uh, and 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 we're putting everything else on on the back burner, and uh, of course that means a lot of people with, uh, you know, cancer, strokes, uh, heart attacks, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as well as the psychiatric illnesses are going untreated, uh, and it, this is. Uh, you know, I think has been a huge mistake in terms of uh, the the mechanism of, of treatment that the CDC and and the medical bureaucracy has decided to take.
1: Well, it, it has been, but I don't think it's been a mistake so much as it has been an orchestrated suppression of early treatment as well as, suppression of the real data on the vaccine risk and suppression of the social, economic, medical and psychiatric cost of the lockdown.
3: I agree. And it's as if uh, the the government really and the, the medical bureaucracy doesn't care about what's happening to these psychiatric patients or to other people who have other medical, physical medical illnesses, uh, and I agree about uh, you know some of the uh, misinformation that's been passed on to the public, because it it, it seems as though it has to be intentional. Uh, you know this this whole thing started out. If you remember, uh, we were talking about all these different models, uh, especially the ones out of Great Britain, in terms of the. Pro- uh, the proposed number of people that were going to die from this uh, COVID illness uh, with uh, some really outrageous numbers um, that, that frightened people and did the job that I believe they intended for it to do. It, it got people uh, very afraid and looking for someone to come fix the problem to, to give solutions. Uh, but you know, you've got, uh, the, and then we went to the 15 days uh, to flatten the curve which became, you know, a month, which became several months, which has become a year and, and more. Um, it, it hasn't made a lot of sense in terms of, you know, the, the, the masks uh, and how you know, they don't work and then they do work. And it, we, we, we've been lied to so many times. It's, uh, it's, it makes sense to me to distrust uh, the people who are in charge in this system uh, that's telling us uh, what we should do next.
1: Well, when we look at the wearing of masks all day long, particularly for young people and particularly kids in school, tell, talk to us as a psychiatrist about the psychological effects of that.
3: You know, it's it's really hard for these kids. They're having a very difficult time. Uh, kids, kids have, had a, a real difficult time recently because of the devices that uh, they spent a lot of time on um, and, and it's been difficult for them to develop actual relationships anyway. But, you know, the masking, putting the mask on really hurts uh, the understanding social cues, uh, you know, those, uh, the, the, the meta communications that, uh that we develop and learn uh, beyond just language. But the other things that we learn from different facial expressions, that sort of thing, uh, they don't get to learn. They've had a year of not learning that stuff as much. Uh, And and that's very difficult because again, right now, kids are having a difficult time developing relationships because of these devices. And so this is gonna really retard uh, their capacity to be able to develop Deeper relationships.
1: You know, it, it does. And it, it also fosters a lack of empathy for other people when you cannot read facial expressions to accurately have input about someone else's emotional state. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we're already seeing the distancing and the severing and the disruption of social relationships and care and concern and empathy for other people. Yes, I think that's partly why we see such rising violence and such um, deliberate violence and, mm-hmm. and just out of control as if the, the other person the target of the violent attack is not even human.
3: Uh, Yes. Uh, When I was a kid, you know, back uh, when we used to watch Westerns on TV, the the bad guys wore wore the mask. Uh, You know, you you see the same thing today, Uh, you know, when you see different groups like Antifa or BLM. um, uh, I won't use the full term that they use, but BLM. The, these these mar- marxist organizations that are uh terrorizing people uh and, and terrorizing the areas in which they live uh, and they they use those masks to, to hide uh, their identity uh, as as they uh, bring destruction so um it's it's another way to to, to hide uh, all that that anger and hurt and and to spread it and so it's it's very very disconcerting
1: Well, we we know that there are physiologic effects because uh, wearing masks for prolonged periods of time interfere with the normal immune system function. It interferes with normal oxygen, carbon dioxide exchange. So people get headaches and confusion, fuzzy thinking. They don't concentrate as well. Kids don't do as well in school because they're wearing a mask all day. They're they're dropping their oxygen and building up carbon dioxide. So you've got, you've got all of those physical effects adding to the stress on the body from a physical standpoint, but then you've got that physical stress and not feeling well, adding to the psychological stress.
3: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's, it's very dangerous with those masks, especially for the kids. There was a, a group of families uh, in Florida that took some of the masks the kids had been wearing at school and had them tested. And they found uh, 11 different pathogens on those masks, including tuberculosis and uh, other you know, uh, germs that could cause uh, meningitis or uh, that sort of thing or, or pneumonia. And so it's, <laughs> they're not healthy in, in any way, shape or form. And, but we've known that masks haven't worked for over 100 years. Uh, during the Spanish flu, they knew that masks didn't work, uh, and, uh, and Fauci himself uh, wrote an article about how the masks are ineffective uh, in terms of, uh, you know, just wearing them on a daily basis to, to, uh, to try to prevent the spread of these respiratory illnesses. So um, th- th- this has been part of a, uh, of, of a control, I believe, by the government uh, to make us continue to wear those masks.
1: Well, you know, I don't think we can interpret it any other way except that it was about control of the population and severing human relationships because of exactly what you just said. And Anthony Fauci himself has flip-flopped and lied so many times. It's shocking that people still seem to have any confidence in him at
3: all, yeah, it, it is amazing. I um, he he admitted to lying um, in the uh, in an article in the New York Times. I believe that was in December of 2020. Uh, it, but of course, nobody reads the New York Times, so you're not going to get a lot of people who, who get that information. But anyone, any physician that admits he lies to me, um, I'm not going to trust him. I mean, there's no reason to believe. Anything else uh, that that he's going to say? I mean, he's got, uh, you know, I I, I had this article, this, uh, I'm sorry, I saw an interview uh, with him with uh, a gentleman named Eugenio Derbez. And it's like uh, Eugene with an I-O at the end of it, D-E-R-B-E-Z. He's a comedian, That's a Mexican comedian. It's the only good, legitimate interview I've ever seen. And and this guy's a comedian. He's not uh, a news reporter. Uh, but he, uh, he, he talked to Fauci and he called Fauci on a couple of things. He talked about the fact that uh, the, these injections have not been used in humans before. And uh, he said, he asked him, isn't this an experimental drug? And what Fauci answered is that this is a new type of therapy. Well, obviously it's new, but he didn't want to answer the question directly. And this is part of my problem. We haven't been honest. Uh, And when I say we, the medical establishment has not been honest uh, with the American people in terms of what they're getting into with these injections. These are experimental uh, treatments, and they don't want people to know that. Uh, And with experimental treatments, there should be a totally different protocol than what we're doing right now.
1: Well, you're, you're right. And what I would like to do is talk more about that very point. When, when we come back from our break, which will be coming up in another couple minutes. And, and I think that's a critically important point. But with regard to the comedian's interview of Fauci, I'm, I'm surprised that more people don't pay attention to the fact that Anthony Fauci does not answer questions directly or He has, you and I are used to reading people's body language and facial expressions as we have training and evaluating patients. But he's so condescending and arrogant and snide and um, just really obnoxious in the way he comes across as so much holier than thou And looking down on the rest of us in the way he avoids answering questions and talks about things and contradicts himself.
3: Yeah. uh, This is the typical old school doctor. This is the way doctors used to be that would tell you to go ahead and do this for your treatment and you don't question the doctor. Uh, You know, when I was a kid, that was the way physicians, a lot of physicians were. Uh, You know, we uh, have been trying to. Uh, changed that over the years, uh, and and yet, uh, for some reason, people respond to that type of, and especially during this type of a fearful event, when people have been stirred up with fear, they respond to these type of uh, authoritarian people.
1: Well, you know, I think you've just hit the nail on the head about maybe why people have been desperate for someone to tell them definitively what to do and what to think and how to behave. Uh, That's a good point. Let's let's pick up on some of these points as we come back from our break. We're going to take a short break here on Voice of a Nation and be right back with more from Dr. Delwyn Williams, practicing psychiatrist in Texas, and Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm.
0: Listen to Malcolm, the Voice of a Nation, on iHeartRadio, or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa.
5: Let's get real, let's get loud on America out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator of nutritional supplements for cell health. Most vitamins haven't been upgraded since the 1930s. Healthy Cell uses a innovative technology, which is a gel pack that pro- provides a better absorbed vitamins and nutrients where they're needed the most i just took a healthy cell today before i went out and exercised and i can tell you i am working hard for america out loud radio as we speak and tonight i am looking for good REM sleep and i can tell you i am tired and i want to fall asleep stay asleep and sleep deeply and wake up refreshed with healthy Cell. Um, I'm gonna use the Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement. This is the only sleep supplement designed to support all four stages of sleep. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, and get a 20% off for your first order of any product. I use Healthy Cell and I'm really glad that I've been introduced to it. So I recommend it for you. Again, go to HealthyCell.com and use the OUTLOUD a code, promotional code, for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.
4: AmericaOutloud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
1: This is... Dr. Lee for America back with the second half of our second hour on Voice of a Nation, continuing the discussion with Dr. Delwyn Williams, practicing psychiatrist in Arlington, Texas. Welcome back, Dr. Williams. You wanted to, you started to talk about the informed consent and about the fact that these are experimental genetic vaccines. And we'll talk more about what I mean by genetic vaccines in a minute, but let's talk more about the whole issue of informed consent. Certainly as a psychiatrist, you understand how important that is. Talk to the listeners about why that's important here.
3: Well, I'm sure many of your listeners know that psychiatry has a rather checkered past in terms of uh, the way in which we've forced medications on patients, forced treatments on patients, Uh, um, there had to be a a total revolution uh, to to really stop that in terms of the field of psychiatry, uh, because some very uh, wrong things happened with patients in the past. And so informed consent is a very important aspect of psychiatry in each state that I know of, especially here in the state of Texas, uh, has strict laws with regard to uh, uh, treating patients and and not being able to force medications on patients, uh, except on very limited uh, situations. Um, so I'm acutely aware, as you mentioned, about informed consent. And uh, with regard to these uh, inoculations, I, I just when you go talk about the fact that they they're being called vaccines. If you look on the CDC website under the glossary of terms, and you look up the term vaccine, these genetic uh, treatments, these injections do not fit the category of a vaccine uh, for several reasons, but I'll give one just one particular reason because uh, it, it, they don't uh, confer immunity. and that's what uh, the CD says a vaccine does. And we know that uh, these these injections don't, but there's several other reasons why they don't fit the term of a vaccine.
1: Well, let's, uh, tell, let's run through that for our listeners um, like you would be telling a patient,
3: well, I, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm not really involved with giving those uh, injections. Uh, and and I, I don't know. I, I've perused that information, but I don't remember the other specific points with regard to those vaccines, uh, the, the, the definition of vaccine. Uh, but I do remember okay. that, that particular point. But uh, my, the, my main point was this. This is a classic bait and switch sales technique. Most people think of a vaccine as being uh, a, uh, uh, if they know anything about vaccines and they have any knowledge beyond you know the, the, the cursory information that a vaccine has a, a part of a virus or it is a attenuated virus or something like that. Uh, and, um, and that that is used uh, to create the immune response. Um, I have talked to physicians who've gotten these uh, genetic, genetic therapy inoculations who didn't realize what they were getting afterwards. So I know if the doctors and the nurses that I'm working with had no clue as to what they were getting and how it worked, we're not giving informed consent to the lay public.
1: You're right. And that's shocking that health professionals would not look into it to understand what they were, were being given in that shot.
3: It is, it's, uh, it's really disturbing. Uh, you know, I personally, when I heard about these injections, I, it didn't, it really didn't sound like a good idea to me to have your body create basically a foreign protein. Uh, that, that does, I mean, I, in my mind, I thought of lots of potential problems with that. Uh, But especially with regard to the fact that these inoculations have never been used in humans before. there have been no human trials. In fact, they couldn't get to human trials because of what happened in the animal trials.
1: Yeah, The animals died. uh, Correct. And
3: the lay public public doesn't know this information. And and so, you know, I went to, uh, I talked to some other docs about this and my concerns and It was almost as if they were again being condescending, sort of like Dr. Fauci, uh, and and, and explaining to me that from their perspective, the lay public won't get this anyway. It's above their heads. And and that's
1: the third. I think the lay public gets it quite well if they're given the information. The problem is they have not been given the information
3: I agree. Oh, and it doesn't matter what our what we think they're going to receive or not. You know, uh, you look at the Nuremberg Code and uh, and you know the, the AMA Code of Ethics. Uh, you know, you look at all these different codes that are out there that are supposed to be guidelines for us to follow. International law, uh, just standards of medicine. Uh, we're we're supposed to make sure that these patients understand what they're getting into, especially. When you're looking at medical experimentation and that is what this is that these have never been used in humans before so everyone's part of a human trial here and uh we're not this unlike a normal human um medical trial or, or study th- th- there's no follow-up there's no there's nothing set up uh, to make this look like a, a real trial so that we can gather information monitor the patients that sort of thing.
1: Well, in fact, the CDC has even stopped tracking people who get COVID after they get the vaccine because it's as if they don't want to know the numbers. But Dr. McCullough said that half of his new COVID patients have had the vaccine. 70% of his patients have now had the vaccine and he's in a busy cardiology practice in downtown Dallas Mm -hmm. and he said half the patients have had the vaccine sorry 70 percent have had the vaccine and half of all of his new COVID patients are people who've been fully vaccinated so the the vaccine the uh, that what they're calling a vaccine doesn't obviously is not conferring immunity because people are still getting COVID.
3: Well and I took the time to actually read the the, the fine print from uh, a couple of these companies from Pfizer and AstraZeneca. And if you read the fine print, it says that uh, these vaccines, or I, I don't want to call it the vaccines, but these inoculations don't uh, necessarily keep you from getting uh, the illness. It'll make it uh, less so and keep you from dying. That is in their their own paperwork
1: yes and that is one of the biggest myths that we have to overcome people have been led to believe actually there there are i'd say there are four top myths about the vaccines that people have been led to believe number 1 is that they're fda approved number 2 that they are protective of infection. In other words, they protect me from getting COVID. Number three, they prevent me from giving COVID to others, which is also false. Mm
5: -hmm.
1: And number four, they they reduce hospitalizations or deaths. And that's false. So all of the top beliefs that my own patients tell me that they, is what they understand about why they got the experimental shot. Every one of those is false.
3: You're right, and and you know I have some dear friends and family who got this these injections, um, and if they had come to me, I would have said, you know, hey, hold off, just let's wait. Uh, I, I've got a friend, uh, a really good couple that I know who are mentors for me. And um, they, their doctor told them not to get the injection. And they, they went ahead and got it anyway. Um, I, uh, it, it, but they did it out of fear. Fear is a very effective tool to get to manipulate people, to get them to do what you want them to do. Uh, and so, you know, I, and trust me, I'm working in a psychiatric emergency room. I'm a, I'm a black male, a little overweight, got to lose some weight. I'm going to the gym now again, finally. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Treated for hypertension, which is because of stress more than anything. But uh, I had some risk factors. So I had, I had to fight that fear because I was working uh, in, the, in an emergency room situation, people coming in off the street. So I had to gather myself and, and as a Christian I had to, uh, you know, the only way to defeat uh, fears with faith, you have to replace those fear thoughts with what God's word says, from my perspective. And so uh, that that's what I had to do. I had to rein myself in from the fear. Unfortunately, a lot of people have been so afraid, again, as we mentioned before, they, they're looking for someone to give them answers to, to fix that fear.
1: Well, I think that's, that's true. And That's one of the reasons that our new foundation initiative, Medicine and Ministry United, is combining physicians and pastors working together in the church settings, not only to bring early treatment, but also to bring programs where we talk about together about the medical facts and about building and strengthening our faith, because God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. If we truly are listening to God and and listening to Holy Spirit's guidance, yes, we should have a sense of peace about a particular step we're going to take in our lives. Not a not responding out of fear. Th-
3: that is so correct, and uh, that that is a. What you are doing in terms of that project is so important. I know you understand this. Uh, I anticipate there being a huge backlash against the medical community. Once, uh, hopefully we won't see things as bad as they potentially can get, but we're gonna have some challenges. Uh, and, and, the, and people are gonna look at the medical community community and say, you guys let us down. Uh, and, and there's going to have to be somewhat of a remnant of us. Those of us who are going to be able to reach out and, and, and still be able to have some credibility, uh, and say, Hey, listen, this is where we were. We, we, we're here to give you some truth. We're here to work with you. And I think through the churches is one of the best places because, um, why I, I just think that the field of medicine is going to have a, you know, i work with a bunch of residents and medical students and, and I'm, and I'm. I'm enlightening these guys and telling them that they're being lied to in so many ways uh, and that they're going to have to pick up the mess that we're leaving them uh, as I'm an older older doctor. So I'll I'll tell them, you know, this is going to be a mess when we leave it to you.
1: Well, I, I really feel that our profession has betrayed patients in huge ways. Mm
5: -hmm. And
1: I think the more that we have watched over you and I have been practicing for similar length of time, and I think the changes we've seen as medicine became more governed by the business of medicine, by physicians leaving independent practice, becoming employees of large health systems in these big group primary care practices and big group internal medicine and surgery practices, and they are employees, Many of these are owned by big health systems. Uh, They are being told what they can do for patients. They are being dictated to by insurance companies when they sign insurance contracts. And and I resigned from all the insurance contracts in 1986. I would not compromise the oath of Hippocrates to serve Mm -hmm. the patients. Mm -hmm. And I've always said I serve God and I serve my patients. I -hmm. do not serve the government or the insurance carrier yes and I think you and I have seen a very ominous shift in the medical profession and I think in the pandemic response it was clearly a betrayal of patient trust when their own primary care doctors said well I don't treat COVID if you get sick just go to the ER and they cowered in the corner and would not stand up uh, people like you and I and many others that uh, the frontline doctors were saying, not on my watch. I am not going to stand by and watch my patients die because I'm too cowardly to do something with existing medicines that are safe and work against other viruses and work against inflammation and work against blood clots. Why not use what we know we're in a war zone and people are dying. So let's use the tools and weapons we have to fight the disease, even if it's an, a novel virus, it had some known effects in the body that we, if we put our minds to it, we knew how to treat it.
3: Absolutely. And I, I really admire you guys uh, for for standing up for what you believe in the, in the treatment with uh, these medications. You know, I, I do um, medical, minist- uh, medical uh, missions uh, to uh, uh, Africa. And uh, so I'm one of the few, few docs, I guess, that also uses hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin quite a bit, you know, over there for malaria and for uh, parasites. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm pro- probably one of a couple of psychiatrists that use those medications. I was, I was highly familiar with these meds. Uh and of course, hydroxychloroquine in, in Nigeria, they call it Sunday, Sunday medication. They give it, they take it once a week. Uh, uh, these, when they came out and then talked about how dangerous these, you know, especially hydroxychloroquine was, uh, I knew there was a hoax. Uh, This has been a total hoax uh, because I've used that medication. My wife actually takes it uh, in addition uh, to, uh, uh, to the fact that I've used it for treating patients uh, when I go to to Africa. So uh, there there are some uh, very nefarious people that are involved with this. There's a, there's a much bigger scheme involved with this, uh, but it's important that people know uh, that uh, they're being lied to. Uh, and, and we want to get that word out to folks. that uh, you know, This is not, as it appears, it is not a vaccine. It is a genetic treatment. And uh, no, it's never been used before. And no one uh, knows the long-term outcome of these treatments. Um, One last thing, if I can, Uh, in that interview with uh, Derbez, he asked about long-term side effects, and and Fauci answered this way. He said, in the history of vaccinology, we don't know of any long-term side effects. They're usually within 15 to 45 days. Now, in the history of vaccinology, it has nothing to do with this particular injection. Cause these injections are genetic therapies and they're not the traditional vaccines. So that's, that's just lying by omission.
1: Well, I, I, I think you're correct on that point. And th- w- let's just clarify for our listeners when we are talking about these experimental inoculations as genetic agents, it is based on the fact that these, experimental shots are designed to trigger the body, to trick the body into making the spike protein that is the dangerous part of the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus that caused all the problems in the COVID-19 illness. And in in addition, with the technology for these new ones for COVID, they actually designed them with a lipid or fat molecule coating, a nano particle coating, of the the agent being injected into your body, and that that coating of fat helps to get the experimental agent across your blood-brain barrier, so it in permeates the whole nervous system, including the brain. And then it gets across the placenta in pregnant women to damage the baby. And it also concentrates in the ovaries and testicles of young girls and boys who are getting, being pushed to be vaccinated. When these tissues are making all of this spike protein, The spike protein is causing inflammation and blood clotting, which damages critical organs. It also infects the lungs with the spike protein and and the heart. So that's why we're seeing the heart damage in young people getting the vaccine as they are pushing the term. So you and I are both aware of what this experimental agent is doing to the body. Patients are being kept in the dark.
3: Yes, yes, they're, they're being absolutely lied to. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the long-term outcome is frightening. You know, we, we've seen in the short term, uh, I, I, there were four British uh, Airways pilots that passed away within a week's period of time after getting those injections. Uh, and these, you know, airline pilots tend to be in very good condition. These guys, uh, uh, you know, uh, they, they have to stay in good health to fly. Uh, and, and and it's very frightening. You, know, you think about what the, the effects of altitude can have in terms of blood clotting. Uh, that's right. There, there are certain countries right now who are suggesting people who've gotten these injections do not fly for over, you know, like four hours at a time, that kind of a thing, which is, I mean, that's kind of frightening.
1: Well, I, th- I think most people just don't realize the, the changes in the body when you are flying on a long flight and the cabin is pressurized mm-hmm. to, to be at the equivalent of an altitude of about eight to 9,000 feet. Will you think about what's the effect on your body if you go from the flatland of Texas and you fly into Telluride, Colorado at mm-hmm. let's say twelve to 14,000 feet you, you have trouble getting enough oxygen to breathe. You get right. short breath, sure. you have headaches mm-hmm. and you, you're lightheaded and your heart, you have palpitations. Well, if people are getting these experimental genetic agents that are tricking the body to make all these spike proteins throughout the brain and body and the critical organs, and then you're flying and the cabin is at eight 9,000 feet equivalent elevation, you're essentially putting yourself at high altitude where you're not getting as much oxygen and the air is drier. And as you said, you're at a higher risk of blood clots. Sure. It's not surprising that we're seeing damages in pilots. In fact, there've been some recent um, reports indicating that perhaps the airlines are withholding information on how serious the vaccine effects are in the pilot population.
3: Hmm. Wow, that has a lot of ramifications. Uh, it's very frightening, sure. and we we have no clue what to expect here. And uh, you know, the uh, you, you asked me about the psychiatric effects with regard to the nanoparticles uh, crossing the blood-brain barrier. And we just don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's it's way too early for us to have an idea. I you know, I'm in, I'm anticipating that there could be some problems though because. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I, who knows, you know, what part of the brain is more affected with, with these these particles and how it's going to, which effect they're going to have. It's, I, well, I, I really,
1: we're, we're already seeing people with dementia taking a, a drop off the cliff in terms mm-hmm. of their cognitive function. So we're already seeing cognitive effects. Mm. We're already seeing adverse mood effects following yeah. the, getting the experimental COVID shots. Mm-hmm. We're already seeing neurologic problems, muscle weakness, and difficulty walking, um, tinnitus, inf- the abnormal sound in your ear has been increasing. Guillaume the- beret, in- uh-huh.
3: the-
1: Yes, you're right. Uh-huh. And that that is the more serious one of the, of the ascending paralysis that ends up with People who get Guillain-Barré end up often in the ICU on a respirator until they can—they're no longer paralyzed. But the—I the, think we're going to see a lot more neurologic and neuropsychiatric effects as the process goes on, and and people have the inflama- inflammatory effects over a longer period of time. People with MS, for example. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Parkinson's are are seeing some of the worsening of their symptoms. And, you know, the other concern that I have, we know that there are certain ethnic groups that were at much higher risk of serious illness and death from COVID. African-Americans, Hispanics, and Native Americans. Those populations of people are the same groups that are at highest risk of the inflammatory and blood clotting complications of these experimental genetic shots for COVID. And interesting and alarming, we're seeing the Biden administration push vaccine centers in Black churches, particularly the evangelical churches. And we're seeing the Biden administration push it in the Catholic parishes Especially in the lower income, lower educational group neighborhoods.
3: Well, you know, uh, Latinos and, and blacks have avoided this uh, these in injections in droves, which which is which is a good thing. Uh, the uh, it's funny to me uh, the, the the more intelligentsia of the black and Latino uh, populations have been the ones to go get the injections, but the street smart people are leery and are staying away.
1: They uh, should be. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, they really should be. You know, it, it, if you just look at the fact that the, the Fauci and the CDC, these guys have been focusing on hand washing, social distancing and masks, but you hear nothing about taking care of yourself, supplementation, exercise, diet, losing weight. Uh, you know, 80% of the people who were hospitalized or died from COVID were were overweight. They were obese. That's something you can control. And and yet you've heard nothing from uh, this medical bureaucracy saying, hey, listen, lose some weight, exercise, eat eat differently, take vitamin D3, get zinc, Um, uh, increase your vitamin C. We've heard none of these very basic simple things that could have been done. Instead, you've got gyms closing, and, uh, and they have people you know, locked up in the house where they can't get any sunshine and create vitamin D.
1: Well, that's right. And all of the ethnic groups we just talked about have serious deficiencies in vitamin D. And yeah. that's not rocket science. The darker your skin, the more melanin you have, and the more, which is a protection against too much sun, right. but also prevents you from converting the pro-hormone of vitamin D in the skin to the active hormone. So the very ethnic groups that we've just been talking about are the ones that are have typically have the lowest vitamin D levels and are most at risk because their vitamin D is too low.
3: Correct. Correct. And and it's, it's just um, it's evil that that is not being taught. I mean I I'm, I'm I'm telling everyone I know, of course, about you know supplementing the vitamin D you know, everyone, they're giving it in the hospitals. They're giving zinc. You know, we know what they're doing to treat people. Uh, but the the, popu- the the populace doesn't know that. The, the news media is not getting that out there at all. And, and they don't want that out there, obviously. That's my perspective.
1: Well, I think you're right. And there is so much to talk about on this. And we the hour went so fast that I'm going to have to have you back. And I welcome you to the advisory council for the foundation, truthforhealth.org. I really encourage our listeners, go to www.truthforhealth.org and click on the vaccine news and print off the one-page fact sheet on vaccine safety and what these genetic vaccines are. Read about it. Learn what you need to know to protect yourself. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been wonderful talking with you and I really do look forward to having you back on Voice of a Nation in the near future.
3: Well, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: You are so welcome. This is Dr. Lee for America signing off for today. Your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm. And we've been talking with Dr. Delwyn Williams practicing psychiatrist in the Arlington, Texas area. Thank you for being with us, all of you, our listeners. Thank you, Dr. Williams. And all of you listening, get loud, speak out. We must stand for truth. We must begin to speak out and have the courage to help make the world around you a better place.